Hello, and welcome to another episode of Nostalgic Mystery Radio. I'm your host, Stevie Kay, and it's my honor to bring you the radio shows of yesteryear. For this episode, I bring you Agatha Christie's Miss Marple, episode titled The Moving Finger, where troubled war veteran Jerry Burton and his sister Joanna rent a cottage in a seemingly tranquil English village, which is plagued by a spate of poison pen letters and murder. This will be a two-part series, so sit back and relax, and I hope you enjoy this nostalgic mystery radio. Thank you for listening. Who on earth can be ringing at this hour? Hello? Jerry, can you get over here as quick as you can? Uh, Please come. mm. Please come. I'll, I'll be there straight away. What's going on? I'm going off to the Symingtons. Why? What's happened? I don't know. Megan rang. She, she sounded very frightened. What do you think it is? I have a nasty feeling it's something to do with that girl, Agnes. I found her. Agnes? She was in the cupboard under the stairs, where the fishing rods and golf clubs are kept. She was all huddled up and cold, horribly cold. Dead. What made you look in there? After you telephoned last night, we all began wondering where Agnes could have got to. We waited up some time, but she didn't come in. And eventually we all went off to bed. I didn't sleep very well, and I got up early. Rose... The the cook? Yes. Hmm. She came into the kitchen and said that Agnes's best things, the ones she wears when she goes out, were still in her room. And I started to wonder if she'd ever left the house after all. So I began looking round, and I opened the door of the cupboard under the stairs. And there she was. Hmm. Has somebody rung up the police? My stepfather contacted them straight away. You look just about all in. I'm going to take you into the kitchen and get you a cup of tea, and pour a dollop of brandy into it. Oh, Mr. Burton, isn't it awful? Whoever can have done such a dreadful thing? It was murder, then. Oh, yes. She was hit on the back of the head. It's all blood and hair. Mm. Oh, horrible. And then she was bundled into the cupboard. Poor Agnes. I'm sure she never did anyone any harm. No. Somebody made sure of that pretty quickly. Hello, Burton. Looks as if you were right to be worried about Agnes. What a perfectly ghastly business. Mm. Miss Holland, Mm. I think you'd better make sure that the boys remain upstairs. I want them kept right away from this. Oh, of course, Mr. Simington. Ah, Mr. Burton, I was going to telephone you. I'm glad you're here. Uh, Mr. Simington, is there a room I could use where I shan't be in anyone's way? The little sitting room would be best, I think. Mm -hmm. It's through there. I should have some breakfast if I were you, Mr. Simington. Murder's a nasty affair on an empty stomach. Thank you, Superintendent. I shall take your advice. Could we uh, have a word, Mr. Burton? Of course. (laughs) I gather you telephoned last night about Agnes Waddell. 
Why was that? She'd arranged to come and have tea with our housekeeper at Little Furs, and she never turned up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a premonition that something might have gone wrong. So, now it's murder. The question is, what did the girl know? Did she say anything to your housekeeper? Not as far as I know. What happened exactly? Ah, it was Rose and Agnes's day out. The Symingtons seem to have found it easier for both of them to be off at the same time, and there's always Miss Holland to get the tea. Rose left to get the 2.30 bus to her aunt in Nether Mickford, and Agnes stayed on to finish the washing up. It's a regular routine between them. After Rose had gone, Symington left to go back to his office at 5 and 20 to 3. Elsie Holland took the boys off to see some friends, and Megan went out for her afternoon bike ride about five minutes later. Leaving Agnes alone in the house. Ah, and she never left it. She was still wearing her cap and apron. Any idea of the time of death? Mm, as usual, Dr. Griffith is reluctant to commit himself. Between 2 and 4.30, he says. But we know that already, since Miss Holland was back by then. How was she killed? She was stunned by a blow on the back of the head. And then an ordinary kitchen skewer was thrust into the base of the skull, causing instantaneous death. Oh, pretty cold-blooded. As you say, what did she know? Well, according to Rose, she'd been growing more and more worried ever since Mrs. Symington's death. And she kept saying she didn't know what to do. <laughs> it's always the same. They won't come to us. Don't want to get mixed up with the police. Now, if she had, she'd still be alive. Didn't she give Rose any hint of what was worrying her? Hmm? Rose says not, and I'm inclined to believe her. But I think I've an idea what it was. You see, Mr. Burton, we know something that you don't. And what was that? Apparently, on the afternoon Mrs. Symington committed suicide... When Rose and Agnes were having their day off? Yes, but that's just the point, Miss Marple. Agnes came back to the house. She'd had a row with her boyfriend. Young Rendell from the draper's shop. How did you find that out? Well, anyway, um, they quarrelled practically as soon as they met. The boy had received one of those letters telling him Agnes had other fish to fry... Agnes was furious that he paid any attention to it and flounced off back home and said she wasn't coming out till he said he was sorry. And while she was looking out of the pantry window, waiting for him to come and apologise, she saw someone drop a letter into the box. How did you work that out? I called at the house two days ago and I just happened to notice that the pantry looks out onto the entrance gate. Well, apparently the letter wasn't delivered by the postman. It had a used stamp stuck on it with a postmark faked in black ink so that it would seem to have come through the post. But Agnes would have seen who delivered it. Then why on earth didn't she tell somebody? <laughs> I think it's possible that she did not at first realise what she had seen. Somebody left the letter at the house, but that somebody was not a person she would dream of connecting with the anonymous letters. Somebody, as far as she was concerned... Absolutely above suspicion. But how on earth did the murderer find out that she knew? Oh, it's very plain that you're not used to life in the country, Mr Burton. Who knew that Partridge had received the telephone call from Agnes? Well, Joanna knew. And Miss Griffith may have overheard it. She'd come up to have a word with Megan. But 
Why should Miss Griffith want to repeat a meaningless piece of information like that? Oh, you'll be amazed at what is news in a place like this. And then, of course, someone at the Symingtons may have overheard Agnes making the call. Elsie Holland or Rose, perhaps. So, yesterday afternoon, as soon as the coast is clear, the murderer walks up to the front door and rings the bell. But why should Agnes let her in if she suspected she was the poison pen writer? Because whoever the caller was, it was somebody highly respected in Limstock. And remember that Agnes could not be certain. She was a slow-witted girl and only vaguely suspicious that something was wrong. And she turns round to get a salver for cards or something like that. And our ladylike caller bats her on the back of her unsuspecting head. Yes, that would be perfectly possible. I've noticed that most of the ladies in Limstock carry a particularly large size in handbags. The only thing that doesn't quite fit is that stabbing Agnes in the back of the neck and bundling her into that cupboard might be rather a hefty job for a woman. You'd be surprised how strong women really are, Mr Burton. And I gather that Agnes wasn't a very big girl. But this really isn't the point, you know. It's what happened on the afternoon of Mrs. Symington's death that matters now. Your friend Superintendent Nash needs to direct his attention to finding out precisely what everyone was doing. You were out of the house for practically the whole time, I understand, Miss Holland. Yes. I was taking the boys out for their afternoon walk. I was late back because as I turned in at the gate... I saw Mr. Symington at the other end of the road returning from the office. It was ten minutes to five and I hadn't even put the kettle on for tea. You didn't go up to see Mrs. Symington? Oh, no. I never did that. She always rested in the afternoons. She was subject to attacks of neuralgia, which generally came on after meals. Dr. Griffith had given her some sachets to take. She used to lie down and try to sleep. So, uh, no one would take up the afternoon post? Oh, no. I would never have dreamt of such a thing. Mr. Symington came in and called out, Mona, Mona, as he usually did. And when she didn't answer, he went up to her room. Mm -hmm. Oh, it must have come as a terrible shock to him. And she'd really been quite happy and cheerful at lunch. What's your opinion now of the letter she received? You think there was any truth in the accusation? No, I certainly don't. Mrs. Symington was very, well... Particular. Anything of that sort. Nasty carryings on. She thought very distasteful. Have you had any of these letters yourself? No. No, I haven't. Are you sure? Sometimes people don't like to admit that they've had them, but we're well aware that they're just a tissue of lies, so you needn't feel embarrassed. No, I haven't, Superintendent. Really, I haven't. Nothing of the kind. You don't think you ought to come back to us for a while? It's nice of you, Jerry. But I think I'd better stay here. I dare say I can help with the boys a bit. Well, it's as you like. Then I think I'll stay. Though... Yes? If anything awful happened, I could always telephone you again, couldn't I? Of course. But what awful thing do you think might happen? I don't know. But things seem rather like that just now, don't they? For God's sake, don't go nosing out any more dead bodies. It's not good for you. No, it isn't. It left me feeling awfully sick. It 
took no time at all for the news of Agnes Waddell's murder to spread all around Limstock. Everywhere along the high street, little groups had gathered, relishing the sensation and eager to find out more. It's the first murder we've ever had in Limstock. The excitement is terrific. I hear you were there just after it happened. Yes, I was. I was a bit uneasy about the poor girl. And you feared the worst. I hear it was Megan who found the body. It must have given her quite a shock. Yes, it did. Tell me, Miss Griffith, was it you who persuaded Megan to return home? It's no good that young woman shirking her responsibility. She doesn't know how tongues wag, so I felt it my duty to give her a hint. Give her a hint about what? Oh, I dare say you don't hear all the gossip that goes around. Mind you, I don't think for a minute there's anything in it. A girl could hardly go off at a moment's notice and leave the children with no one to look after them. But there it is. It's an invidious position and people will chatter. Are you talking about Elsie Holland? Of course I am. They're saying she's already considering the possibility of becoming Mrs. Symington number two. That she's all out to console the widower and make herself irreplaceable. But good God, Mrs. Symington's only been dead a week. Of course, poor Dick Symington hasn't the least idea of any of this. He's still completely devastated by poor Mona's death. But you know what men are. If the girl is always there, making him comfortable, looking after him, well, he gets to be dependent on her. So you told Megan she ought to go home so that Mr. Symington and Miss Holland wouldn't be left alone together in the house. You're shocked, Mr. Burton, at hearing what our little town is thinking. I can tell you this. They always think the worst. A nasty tramp or a lunatic seems to be the general verdict. Although Miss Barton does think there might possibly be some connection with the anonymous letters. What you got there? A photograph of your plane crash. I found it lying around with some papers I was trying to clear up. You don't really want to keep it, do you? Yes, I do rather. I can't tell you why, but I want to keep it. It's got a bit curly at the edges. You need something to flatten this out. There's some pretty hefty looking books in the bookcase. Oh. One of them ought to do the trick. Ah. ah, here we are. Crindle's Sermons. Good Lord. What is it? Just look at this. Someone's cut a whole lot of pages out of the middle. This is the book our poison pen friend used. No doubt about it. It matches the print on the letters exactly. Where did you find it? In the drawing room at Little Furs. Mm -hmm. So, who could have cut these pages out? Well, I suppose the obvious person is Emily Barton. It's her house, after all. Or it might possibly have been Partridge. Oh, I don't see her writing those letters. But it could have been almost anybody. The door's never locked if there's someone around the house. Well, I, I'll have the book checked for fingerprints, but I doubt whether we'll find anything. I imagine all you'll find will be mine and Partridge's. She's very particular about the dusting. Are you making any progress? We're steadily narrowing it down. We've eliminated the people it couldn't be. You're all right, so's your sister. And Mr. Symington didn't leave the office once he'd got back, and Dr. Griffith was with a patient. So who remains? Well, there's Miss Ginch. Ah, the uh, woman who used to work with Symington, mm -hmm. who the poison pen writer said he was having an affair with? Well, she was out of the office at the time when the letter was presumably dropped into the Symington's letter box, mm. and she has no alibi for the afternoon of the murder. 
And then there's Emily Barton. Oh, she's much too old and frail, surely. And Amy Griffith was supposed to be in Brenton for a meeting of the girl guides at the time Agnes was killed. But she was over an hour late. Did you learn any more from taking a closer look at the typewriter? Mm, nothing. We returned it to the Women's Institute. Isn't that rather asking for trouble? Oh, that's exactly what we're after. You see... I'm banking on the fact that this woman can't stop writing these letters. She may know it's dangerous, but the compulsion is too strong for her. Surely you don't think she'd be crazy enough to use that particular machine again? Well, apart from you, Dr. Griffith and Mr. Symington, nobody in Limstock knows we've traced the envelopes to that typewriter. I reckon that whoever it is will go along to the Women's Institute after dark one night and try again. It's like a craving for drink or drugs. And when she does, Mr. Burton, we'll be there, waiting for her. The great drawback about setting traps is that you can never be certain who is going to walk into them. Just like little... You know, Mar Miss Marple, I'm even starting to have dreams about it now. The same old faces, Miss Ginch, Miss Griffith, Miss Barton, Partridge... Somebody keeps whispering, no smoke without fire. And Elsie Holland is getting married to Dr Griffith. Uh, and there was something about a message on a piece of paper. But that was because the last thing I'd noticed before going to bed was a note from Joanna. Would you consider me very inquisitive if I asked what the message was? Oh, it wasn't anything of importance. Something about if Dr Griffith rings up, tell him I can't go on Tuesday but could manage Wednesday. Oh, yes, something quite ordinary. But tell me, have you found out whether there is anyone in Limstock who has not received a letter? Miss Barton said she hadn't, but the superintendent got talking to the woman she's staying with. Her former parlourmaid, I believe. And she said that Miss Barton had certainly received one, accusing her of poisoning her sister. Ooh. Anybody else? Yes. Elsie Holland. That is most unusual. One would have thought anyone so young and pretty. I couldn't agree more. But she swears she hasn't, and I must say, I believe her. So does Superintendent Nash. That really is most interesting. I think it is probably the most interesting thing that I've heard yet. Jerry, is <sighs> that you? Oh. Megan, where did you spring from? I thought I recognised your car. Have you been having a chat with the vicar? No, I came to see Miss Marple. Oh, she's full of surprises. At first, I thought she was only interested in knitting patterns. Now, I'm not so sure. She's a very wily old bird. She likes me to keep her up to date with any news about the murder. But you haven't told me what you're up to. This is no time for a girl to be wandering about on her own. Oh, you don't have to worry about me. I like walking at night. Nobody stops you and says silly things. I like the stars and the silence. And the world smells better. And every day things suddenly become very mysterious. All the same, only cats and witches walk in the dark. They'll be wondering where you are at home. Oh, no, they won't. They never worry where I am or what I'm doing. Doesn't Miss Holland look after you and all that? She does her best. I suppose she can't help being a perfect fool. Well, if nobody cares what you're doing, why can't you... Uh, no, Jerry. It's very sweet of you, but it wouldn't be right. Not just now. Don't get me wrong, I was very happy at Little Furs. But I just feel it's my duty to be at home. As you wish. But let me give you a lift back at least. No. Thanks all the same, but I don't want to go back just yet. I want to be by myself for a little while longer. 
I shan't come to any harm. Two five one. We've got her, Mr. Burton. You mean that you've? Can you be overheard where you are? Ah,、uh, I can't be sure. Well, perhaps it would be better if you were to come down to the station. I'll be there straight away. That's the letter. She finally got round to Elsie Holland.、Hmm. It's no use thinking you're going to step into a dead woman's shoes. The whole town is laughing at you. Get out now. This is a warning. Remember what happened to the other girl. Get out and stay out, you silly little bitch. But this one's typewritten. Yes, and we saw her typing it. Well, I'm sorry about it because it will hit a decent man hard. But there it is. Perhaps he's had his suspicions anyway. Who wrote it then? Miss Amy Griffith. Never heard such nonsense! As though I'd write rubbish like that. You must be mad. Do you deny having written this, Miss Griffith? Of course I deny it. Well, I must tell you, Miss Griffith, that you were observed to type this letter on the machine at the Women's Institute between eleven and eleven thirty the night before last. Don't be so ridiculous. What's going on? Is it true what they're saying, Mr. Symington? I'd be greatly obliged if you'd tell me, me, my dear. If there is anything wrong, you ought to be legally represented. Oh, go away, Dick! Just go away. I don't want you to hear about this, Amy. I simply want no, to help, Dick. Please, for God's sake, don't look at me. I can't bear it. Of course, they're all saying they thought it was her from the start. Emily Barton is telling everyone that she never really trusted Miss Griffith. The grocer's wife says that she always thought Amy had a queer look in her eye. How's Doctor Griffith taking it? Oh, he's completely broken up. He just can't believe it. And to make matters worse, they've discovered that there's a heavy pestle missing from his surgery. It can't be true, Mister Burton. I simply can't believe it. It's true enough, I'm afraid. The police actually saw her typing the letter. Oh yes, they may well have done, but that and doesn't. they found the printed pages that the poisoned pen writer had used, the ones that were torn out of the book at Little Furs, concealed under the stairs at her home. And there's a large, heavy pestle missing from her brother's dispensary. Oh, but that is horrible, really wicked. Jane, what's the matter? What is it? There must be something one can do to put an end to this business once and for all. But I'm so old and helpless. Jane, don't you think you'd better let that girl, Megan Hunter? Would you say that she had courage, Mr. Burton? Courage? Yes. I'm sure of it. Then I must go and talk to her. And please, Mr. Burton, however much you may care for the girl, don't attempt to interfere. But what is it you're proposing to do, Jane? To lure the murderer out from behind the smoke screen. Oh, I'm sure the boys are both quite old enough. Old enough? To go off to boarding school, Mr. Symington. Not that I shan't miss them both very much. I think you're probably quite right as far as Brian is concerned. I've decided that he shall start next term at Winhays. My old prep school,、oh. but as for Colin, I really think that. I would like to speak to you, please. Alone. Really, Megan, is this necessary? We're having an important discussion. Yes, it's very necessary. Very well. 
do you mind, Miss Holland? Uh, no, of course not. We can talk about it later. Well, Megan, what is it? What do you want that's so important? I want money. Couldn't you have waited until tomorrow morning? What's the matter? Do you consider your allowance inadequate? It's nothing to do with my allowance. I want a great deal of money. You'll come of age in a few weeks' time. Then the money left by your grandmother will be turned over to you by the trustees. You don't understand. I want money from you. From me? Nobody's ever talked to me much about my father. They didn't want me to find out about him. But I do know that he went to prison, and I also know why. It was for blackmail. What exactly are you getting at, Megan? Perhaps I'm beginning to take after him. I'm asking you for money because if you don't, I shall tell the police what I saw you putting into one of Mother's sachets while she was sleeping. I haven't the faintest idea what you're talking about. I think you have. Go on. Write me a check. Very well, Megan. I can see that now you're grown up, you'll need to buy something rather special in the way of clothes and all that. I can't pretend to understand what it is that you're trying to say, but I'll write you your check, and I'll make it quite a generous one. I knew you'd have to butt in, Burton. But the girl's in deadly danger. I couldn't hear what they were saying, but one look at Symington's face after Megan had left the room was enough to convince me. We've got to get her out of that house straight away. We're gonna do no such thing. It's all under control, trust me. We've got two men inside the house standing by. She'll be perfectly safe. Now, if you promise to keep your mouth shut, you can come with me. We'll go in by the side door and take up a position on the second floor landing. And then what do we do? We wait. In silence, Mr. Burton. Two o'clock. How much longer are we going to have to wait? Symington put a soporific in the glass of milk she took before going to bed. He's got to give time for it to take effect. How can you be sure he hasn't poisoned her? He daren't risk that. Whatever he has in mind has got to appear natural. But what if he's shh? He's going to make us room. Now, if I'm right about what he has in mind, he's going to carry her down to the kitchen. We'll follow him. Not a sound mind. That should put an end to your attempt to follow in your father's footsteps. I think you'd better turn the gas off, Mr. Symington. Huh? I'll do it. <clears throat> Richard Symington, I arrest you for the murder of Mona Symington and of Agnes Waddell. And I warn you that anything you say may be used in evidence against you.
Of course, the great thing in cases like these is to keep an open mind. Most crimes you see are so absurdly simple. This one was. It was that tiresome phrase you quoted, Mr. Burton, that gave me the first indication of what was really going on. No smoke without fire. For once, it wasn't true. There was smoke everywhere, everybody looking at the wrong thing. But there was no fire, for there weren't really any poison pen letters. But I had one. So did Jerry. Oh, yes, but they weren't real at all. Dear Maud tumbled to that. When I couldn't understand why the writer of the letters hadn't used any of the real scandals... Any woman living in the place would have known about them and used them. But a man, you see, isn't interested in gossip in the same way. Especially a detached, logical man like Mr. Symington. Yes, a woman would have made a much better job of it. So you see that if you disregard the smoke screen, you come down to the actual facts of what happened. And if you put aside the letters, there was only one thing. My mother died. So then, naturally... One thinks of who might have wanted Mrs. Symington to die. And, of course, the very first person one thinks of in such a case is, I'm afraid to say, the husband. And one asks oneself, is there any reason, any motive? For instance, another woman. And the first thing I hear is that there is a very attractive young governess in the house. So simple, isn't it? Mr. Symington, a rather dry, repressed, unemotional man tied to a... Forgive me, my dear, rather neurotic wife. And then suddenly this radiant young creature comes along. But there was never any question of anything between my stepfather and Elsie Holland. I'm sure I'd have noticed it. Oh, it was all perfectly respectable. She's a very proper girl, and he wanted to marry her. I'm afraid, you know, that gentlemen, when they fall in love at a certain age, get the disease very badly. It's quite a madness... And Mr. Symington simply lacked the strength to fight it. He couldn't possibly just run off with the young woman and get a divorce. That way he'd have lost the boys and he would never have given them up. In fact, he wanted everything. His home, his children, his respectability and Elsie Holland into the bargain. And the price he had to pay for it was the murder of his wife. He knew very well from his experience of criminal cases how readily suspicion falls on the husband if a wife dies unexpectedly. So he created a death which seemed only incidental to everything else. So he invented a non-existent poison pen writer. And things being what they are, in a place like Limstock, everybody was bound to believe it was a woman. Even the police thought so. And they were quite right in a way, because many of the letters were cribbed from reports of a case last year that Dr. Griffith had told him about. And they were written by a woman. Of course, he didn't reproduce any of the letters verbatim, but he took phrases and expressions from them so that they definitely represented a woman's mind, a half-crazed, repressed personality. But how did he manage to get into the Women's Institute to type out the envelopes? Surely he was running a tremendous risk. Ah, but you see, he'd been preparing his crime for some time. He typed all the envelopes in advance before he gave away the old typewriter to the Women's Institute. And he probably cut the pages from the Book of Sermons while Emily Barton was still living at Little Furs. He was always calling round there on legal matters. People don't open books of sermons very often. But just a minute, what about the letter to me? The envelope must have been typed out long after he'd given the typewriter away. Of 
course, how stupid of me. Superintendent Nash told me that the envelope with your letter had originally had Miss Barton written on it, and the A had been changed to a U. It was just as well it didn't go to Miss Barton. She'd have been very surprised to be addressed as you painted Trollope. Hmm. <laughs> but what about the actual murder of Mrs. Symington Jane? How did he manage it? He chose an afternoon when the governess and the boys were out. And when I would be off riding my bicycle. And the servants would be having their free afternoon. He could not foresee that Agnes Waddell would have a quarrel with her boyfriend and come back to the house. But what exactly did she see? I don't know. I can only guess. And my guess would be that she didn't see anything. You mean it was all a mare's nest? Oh, no, Maud. I mean that the girl stood at the pantry window all afternoon waiting for her young man to turn up and that, quite literally, she saw nothing. No one came to the house at all, not the postman nor anybody else. Being a rather slow-witted girl, it would take her some time to realise that this was very odd because she knew that Mrs Symington was supposed to have received an anonymous letter that afternoon. You mean she didn't receive one at all? No, of course not, Mr. Burton. It was a very simple crime. Mr. Symington simply put the cyanide in the top sachet of the ones that Mrs. Symington usually took in the afternoon for her neuralgia. All Symington had to do was to get back at the same time as Elsie Holland, call up to his wife, get no reply, go upstairs to her room drop a spot of cyanide in the glass of water she had used to take the sachet and toss the crumpled up anonymous letter in the grate. But what about the suicide note? That scrap of paper was all wrong and you knew it. People don't leave suicide notes on small, torn scraps of paper. That's why you were so immediately intrigued by the message your sister left scribbled on the telephone pad. If Dr Griffith rings up, I can't go on Tuesday. I can't go on, of course. Mr. Symington came across such a message and saw its possibilities. He tore off the words he wanted for when the time came, a message genuinely in his wife's handwriting. Tell me, Miss Marvel, what was so significant about the fact that Elsie Holland never received one of the letters until Amy Griffith sent her one? For a moment, I thought that you suspected her of being the poison pen writer. Oh, dear me, no. The person who writes anonymous letters nearly always sends one to himself. That's part of the excitement, I suppose. But what interested me was that it revealed Mr. Symington's one great weakness. He couldn't bring himself to write a foul letter to the woman he loved. That's where he gave himself away. But why did he have to kill Agnes? Surely that was quite unnecessary. Oh, perhaps it was. But what you don't realise, my dear, not having killed anyone, is that your judgment is distorted afterwards and everything seems exaggerated. No doubt he heard Agnes telephoning to Partridge, saying she was worried about Mrs. Symington's death, that there was something she couldn't understand, and he couldn't afford to take chances. But I thought he was supposed to be at his office all afternoon. I should imagine that he killed her before he left. He went into the hall and opened the front door and rang the bell. It would have taken Agnes a moment or two to get from the kitchen, ample time for him to come back in and hide in the little cloakroom. Agnes went to the front door, and he hit her on the head just as she was opening it. He bundled her under the stairs and hurried away to the office. And if he arrived a little late, no one would have thought anything of it. But what about Amy Griffith? 
I don't understand where she comes into it at all. The police actually saw her write that letter. Oh, yes, she did write that letter. But why? Because the poor soul had been in love with Mr. Symington all her life. Of course. I see it now. The way she used to look at him sometimes. I gather they'd always been great friends, and I dare say she thought after Mrs. Symington's death that someday perhaps they might... And then she began to hear all the gossip about Elsie Holland, and I expect that upset her very badly. And so I think she succumbed to temptation. Why not add one more anonymous letter and frighten the girl out of the place? And do you think that when Elsie showed the letter to Mr. Symington, he realised who had written it? I'm sure he did, and he saw an opportunity to end the whole business once and for all. When he took the letter down to the police and found that they'd actually seen Amy writing it, he knew that he had a chance of finishing off the whole thing. You mean hiding the torn-out pages from the book under the stairs? Yes, and it was quite a clever place to put them. Everyone would link it to the disposal of Agnes's body, and when he called at the Griffith house, the police were far too preoccupied with Amy to notice him planting the evidence. All the same, there's one thing I can't forgive you for, Miss Marple. Roping in Megan like that. Oh, come off it, Jerry. It was really quite exciting. It was very dangerous. You might have been killed. Yes, Mr. Burton. But we are not put into this world to avoid danger when the lives of innocent fellow creatures are at stake. I needed someone of high courage and good brains. And I found her. Megan! Where are you off to? Nowhere, really. Just going for a walk. To anywhere in particular? No, just a walk. Then hop in. Right you are. Where are you going? To the station. I'm going to London. And you're coming with me. You're very sudden, aren't you? It runs in the family. The Burtons have been renowned for their suddenness for centuries. So what are we going to do when we get to London? I'm going to show you what you could look like if you tried. Why? What's wrong with me? Everything. Just look at your stockings. What about them? They're loathsome. And look at your pullover. It's like a decayed cabbage. Oh, there's nothing wrong with it. I've had it for ages. So I should imagine. I'll tell you exactly what we're going to do. First of all, I'm going to take you to Mirrortown. Joanna's dressmakers. I think I'd better tell her you're my cousin. Why? Because otherwise she'll get much too curious. I shall instruct her to turn you out perfectly from head to foot. Dress, stockings, shoes, everything. And then... Yes? Well, then you're going to go to Joanna's hairdresser. <laughs> I'll bet you've been wearing your hair like that since your first day at school. <laughs> and then when all that's been accomplished, I shall come and collect you. So, what do you think? Uh... I would never have recognised you. <laughs> I do look rather nice, don't I? Nice? You look quite fantastic. You... You just take my breath away. Oh, I'm glad about that. So what are we going to do now? We're going out to dinner. And if every man in the room doesn't turn around to look at you, I'll eat my hat. But you don't have a hat. Don't be difficult. It's all simply marvellous. I just can't believe it. I've never enjoyed myself so much in all my life. 
I've never tasted food like this. I've certainly never drunk such wonderful wine. Are you sure you're feeling all right? I'm perfectly sober, if that's what you mean, Jerry. Oh, let's dance. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I quite forgot. Don't the worry yourself. Oh, I'm sure I'll be able to shuffle around somehow. Let's try at any rate. <laughs> And you're a simply fabulous dancer. Well, so I should be. We had dancing classes every week at school. It takes more than dancing classes to make a dancer. <laughs> Good Lord. What is it? What's the matter? I've just noticed the time. about Jerry Burton and Megan. No, Maud, but I know you're dying to tell me. He took her up to London yesterday, and they missed the last train, and didn't get back till the small hours of the morning. All Limstock is talking about it. I can't help feeling that Limstock must be desperate for topics of conversation. And he's bought her new clothes and shoes and everything. And she's had a new hairdo, which makes her look quite grown up. A good thing, too, in my opinion. And I suppose that all the gossips are saying that he'll have to marry her to make an honest woman of her. Yes, Jane, that is exactly what they are saying. I fancy that is precisely what Mr. Burton has in mind. I've been worried about that girl for a long time, but now I can forget all about her. She'll be very safe with Mr. Burton. And I can go back to St. Mary Mead and find out what's been going on there while I've been away. There's something very reassuring about the gossip of one's own village. It always makes me feel at home. In Agatha Christie's The Moving Finger... Miss Marple was played by June Whitfield. Jerry Burton, Nicholas Bolton. Joanna Burton, Claire Corbett. Mrs. Dane Calthrop, Patricia Scott. Megan Hunter, Annabel Dowler. Richard Symington, Hugh Dixon. Elsie Holland, Jenny Funnell. Amy Griffith, Elizabeth Bell. Dr. Owen Griffith, Roger May. Miss Partridge, Catherine Parr. Superintendent Nash, Sean Probert. The Moving Finger was dramatized for radio by Michael Bakewell and directed by Enid Williams. Radio presentation. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to like and rate this podcast on your favorite app. Also, there's a Nostalgic Mystery Radio YouTube page for your perusal to subscribe to. You can contact me by emailing me at nostalgicmysteryradio at gmail.com. I hope you have a blessed day or evening, and again, thank you for listening. <laughs>